Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me as always is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Hello everybody. And we have a very special guest with us today. Writer, director, producer, and the founder of Reverend Entertainment. And a hell of a drummer. <laughs> Justin B. Justin, welcome to the show. And and can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to and uh, maybe a little bit about Reverend Entertainment? Yeah. Hi, Chris. Rob. Rob and I, for those who don't know, I don't know if, Rob, you were planning to get into this, but Rob and I go, Oh yeah. I mean, this history is a long one. And, and you beat me to the <laughs> dance here in, in the world of cinema. Like you were... Out of all the friends that I knew, you were the only one who really put your toe in the water It's long ago. And I, I always found that to be a real point of inspiration for me, that that you were that you made you made the trip. You came out, uh, you went out west and invested in this thing. And I always thought that was really, really awesome, really impressive. Oh, thanks. I was just I was just too dumb to know any better. But uh sometimes Sometimes that's, that's good. Isn't that kind of <laughs> how we all discover know. these things? We're yeah. too dumb to know better. We it's absolutely the, it's the lack of yeah. filters that lead us to the things that we fall in love with. And I think that that's one of the things that I'd like to point to with the video store and rental and like your show here. There is a nostalgia element, but there's also the discovery path was so special to us encountering these things when we were young. And mm -hmm. that's something that um, is, is different now. The journey is a little bit different for people. It's not better, not worse, I think. It's just a little bit different. And I'm grateful that we had the chance to blind rent. I remember Sleepaway Camp, for example, <laughs> blind renting that from Farmore in Cedar Rapids. You remember P-H-A-R-M-O-R was the store. And it yeah. was kind of a precursor to the Target Superstore thing. But they had, anyway, you'd rent five movies, five bucks, five days. And when you rent it, that's a good them, deal. That is a good deal. It's a tremendous deal. And they had the best selection. And they would send the tape home in those squeeze cases where you take the box with you. So it's kind of like going mm -hmm. to a, an art gallery, falling in love with a painting, and then getting to take it home, watch it, and have the art sitting there, which is really what the video rental shelves were, right? It was like a gallery yeah. of trying to draw you into these things. Anyway, I haven't even gotten to your question yet, but that that does lead me to. My work with Reverend, which Reverend Entertainment is my production company and primarily at this point focusing on documentary and special features for Shout Factory, Paramount, other companies I've done things for like Studio Canal, Arrow, Vinegar Syndrome here and there. So it, it really runs the spectrum. But my whole thing is capturing the stories from the people who made these things that we yeah. fell in love with so many years ago and preserving that history. And I'm, I'm tremendously honored to have the chance to do that every day. And you do a terrific job. Not only I've watched the documentary that you did on our first movie today, Sleepaway Camp um, on the, on the Scream Factory disc there. But I also watched some of the special features for a movie we covered last week, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the, the special features for that, for that disc are terrific. I mean, oh, you. you, you have a way of drawing out these stories from the people who were involved in the making of these movies. And it's amazing that after all these years, it's really extraordinary what you do. And I, I did have a question about that documentary in yeah. particular, just one. When you go to the credits, you are using other uh, warm side. Oh, movies, yes. Excuse me. Now, how, how did you make the choice between that or Santa's watching? Because it's, 
It's such it's, a Sophie's it's, choice. It's really difficult. And that warm side of the door is one of the greatest cinematic audio gifts in the history of film. It, it's such a that montage is just incredible. Where he, mm-hmm. I mean, everything about oh, yeah. it is incredible. Where he, you know, uh, what's his name calls him a moon goon, and then he's yep, he sipping from his whiskey. You want some? <laughs> he's like, no, I got my milk. Like <laughs> while this sappy, oh, yeah. super sappy song plays with so much gusto, warm side of the door. It's incredible. So I knew actually when I set out to make that documentary, that was the first thing I said is we're going to have that over the finish, uh, over the end credits. That was you knew from, from the, the get go. From the get go, okay, that was a day one it. decision yeah. for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and I was going to ask, have you have you already done your drive in? Uh, you know, feature uh, in Iowa. Yeah, it was the first weekend of October this year. Yep. Uh, How did that go? It was all right. Last year I showed uh, Legend of Boggy Creek and I followed by Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat. And that was a big hit last year. And this year I got Monster Squad is the first feature. And then Alligator is the second, which I had worked on earlier this year, Alligator. And Monster Squad was just totally selfish because I'd always wanted to see it in a theater at a big screen and I never had the <laughs> chance to. And it was weird because I'm sitting there with Mitch, my brother, if you'll remember, Rob. Yeah. And Mitch was helping out that night and Monster Squad is playing and we're just in lawn chairs kind of by the table I have, which is by the concession stand. And realizing this is the first time that he and I had sat side by side watching monster squad since we were probably like 12 years old and it was one of those frequent rentals in oh, fact yeah. sleepaway camp was too uh, which we'll get into in a little bit but that i mean monster squad was wildly informative for me that transformed my perspective because there was goonies that i discovered first and goonies was mm-hmm. incredible it was i thought the pinnacle and then i found the kids in monster squad and i'm like whoa these are my totally. people 100 percent Totally. Yeah. Uh, I I have never seen The Legend of Boggy Creek, uh, but I am a huge fan of Charles B. Pierce as a filmmaker because he made one of my all-time favorite movies, the Lee Majors uh, Viking film, The Norseman, which is just a movie I can watch. I discovered it with a friend of mine in college, and we just were like sucked into this movie on television. And it's it's one of those – I own it on Blu-ray, for goodness sake. Yeah. It's like one of those movies I, I can watch endlessly. I love it. Pierce is such a fascinating guy. And I worked on one of the first discs that I did was uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Oh, which is a really good movie. Amazing movie. movie. Which, Rob, do you remember our discussion about that at Denny's years ago? Yeah, a long time ago. Okay, so here's the deal. Over lots of coffee. Yeah, lots of coffee. (laughs) But I had been, this movie was etched in my brain. But there were just a couple scenes. The image of it is so, the bag on the guy's head, it's so striking. The trombone sequence is oh, is, yeah, is horrifying, yeah. and it's so unrelenting, and it just keeps going, and it there's almost it's silent, so all you're hearing is the sound of the impalement and stuff. I had seen the movie. I think it's it was one of these with Elephant Man, and there's one like the White Ape, and there's another one that my babysitter had left some movie channel on during the day when I would stay at her house when I was young, and this one ended up on. And I was spent, I spent years trying to figure out what is it? Cause I, th- I first thought, was it dark night of the scarecrow? No, mm-hmm. it's not dark night of the scarecrow. And I, I sat down with Rob one day and we were just having coffee. And I think it was like you were back in town or something, or I don't even remember what the deal was, but, and I'm yeah. like, you know, help me, help me out here. There's this movie. And I describe a little bit. He goes, Oh, town, the dreaded sundown. 
I'm like, son of a, right off the bat, he knew exactly what it was. <laughs> and little did I know that then, I don't know, 10, whatever years later, I would be doing the Blu-ray for it, for Shout Factory. And in the basement of Brooke Hoover of the Surf Zombies, a band out of Cedar Rapids here, recording my side of the commentary. And I got the, the case historian, James Presley, who actually worked for the newspapers down there in Texarkana back when this was happening. And his dad was the sheriff on the case when this whole thing was going down. Oh, wow. And James was, I, I just happened to encounter him through research and finding old articles he had done on it for the local newspaper there. And I'm like, if nothing else, that would be amazing. Little did I know he was working on a book about the case, which is now out, which I cannot recommend highly enough. If you look up James Presley oh, I didn't know and that was um, The Phantom Killer might be what the book yeah. is called, I want to say. It's absolutely- Oh, I'm going to check that out because I, I saw the movie for the first time not too long ago. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, and I, it was just one of those blind spots for me. And I watched it and I was, I was like, it was amazing. And then, of course, it was like, oh, I, I went to go find out as much about uh, uh, the actual case. The, the movie we're talking about is uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is about- um, uh, is based on a, a real killing spree that happened in Texarkana uh, in the in the late night in the early night mid 1940s early mm -hmm. it was right after World War II and uh, it's still unsolved to this day. But if you read the book, he takes he really leads you into some very plausible people who who mm. who may have been behind the whole thing. But I am what definitely going to check that out because and and this is back to your point on Pierce and his brilliance. He he blended this narrative with this, the, the historical facts in a way and, and shoehorned in some humor enough that it didn't feel like it was real heavy handed throughout right. the whole movie, but also was very stark in the violence and the darkness that he was presenting. And so for the commentary, I have uh, James Presley speaking to the case. I'm speaking to the movie and we're just having a discussion over the running time of the film on that shop factory disc, which ended up being really cool and such a unique opportunity because very few movies that exist that sort of cross that line into the realm of true crime mm -hmm. deal with it so deftly. Usually yeah. it's a heavy handed slasher. Now Ed Gein is... Um, this hulking beast and he's ripping people in half or whatever it might be. Yeah. These things aren't always very accurate yeah. to, to history, but Pierce is really brilliant. And Boggy Creek feels similarly documentary like just like town that dreaded sundown. If you, yeah. if you were to visit on that, it's really, and it initiated the whole Bigfoot subgenre. It launched the whole thing into the stratosphere. It's oh, amazing. I, I, again, I, that's one, another one of those blind spots is Legend of Boggy Creek, which I, I read that a Blu-ray is somehow is coming, but is not yet here. I'm not sure what the deal is. So I'm, I'm at some point I got I have to catch up with that because, uh, again, Charles B. Pierce, he made the Norseman. What else do you need to say? I've been working with, uh, with his daughter, Pamela, who owns everything now. And oh, she's really? been, she's been very protective. And so she and I have been working on an ultimate release 4k disc. Oh, and wow. I have, I have, I mean, I can't spill the beans on everything. What I'll oh, say no, no, is no. that what we've found on, in the archives for that thing is absolutely remarkable. And Oh, just, I'm, I'm definitely in when that does come out. I am definitely, in. I, I didn't even, I didn't know that we just, th this, we just stumbled into that conversation just now, folks. That is, that is, that is what podcasting is all about is these kinds of things. Uh, but no, I am, I am all in on uh, legend of Boggy Creek when, when yeah. that comes out. Yeah. Check it out for sure. It's really good. She, you can go to 
legendofboggycreek.com or something that she has. And she has a disc out now, but we actually did a, a, a new transfer after the one that's on this disc, which looks amazing now, but I found a stabilization problem in the one that's out there. And so the next version is definitely going to be the ultimate if folks want to hang tight and wait for that to come out. Well, that sounds awesome. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, that is very exciting. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Our first film today uh, is the 1983 film Sleepaway Camp, which Justin also did some of the special features for, for the Scream Factory disc. Dear Mom and Dad, I've been at a sleepaway camp for almost three weeks, and I'm getting very scared. Welcome to sleepaway camp. Someone is watching you. Someone is waiting for you. Someone wants to scare you to death. Turn it! Turn the wheel! Oh my god! Sleep away, camp. You won't be coming home. Written and directed by Robert Hiltzik, Sleepaway Camp stars Felissa Rose, Jonathan Tierston, Karen Fields, Christopher Collet, Mike Kellen, Catherine Kami, Paul D'Angelo, and Desiree Gould. And let's just start out with the fact that this movie is deeply weird. Like, this is a deeply weird movie. Perhaps one of the, the strangest in any of the movies we've discussed in this series so far. Before we get to the ending, like before we, we get into it and and talk about the ending, which obviously we, we have to. Yeah, we are going to spoil the hell out of this movie. Yeah, I want to just give my requisite <laughs> spoiler warning, which I made sure to put in my notes this time because I tend to forget about it and then think about it at the last minute. But it's just, this is a movie that's impossible to talk about without talking about the 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 ending and the reveals at the end because there's just a lot of stuff to unpack there. So if if you haven't seen Sleepaway Camp and want to, press pause and come back to us afterwards because it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating movie. Well, let's start with the dedication. In fond memory of my mom, comma, a doer. That is a very strange way to start your movie given all of what happens in this, in this, uh, in this film. Well, the thing is, I will say, it does kind of fit with summer camp. Yes. Okay. It's almost like your letter back home because, and that for me is one of the reasons why I think the the tone of this is so it's, it's, it's funny, but it's unsettling is that this really is, it's a slasher movie, but it also actually has the beats of a coming of age summer camp. Yes. Movie. And, and I'll add the the original trailer actually start with, has starts with a letter being written home, you know, dear mom and dad, I've been at sleepaway camp for three weeks and I'm very, very scared. And that was the back of the box too. That was the back of the VHS box was that letter. Oh, right. See that? I See that? I don't remember. I don't think my parents let me rent sleepaway camp. I think, I think what's interesting to your point, Rob, is that the, the, touching on the nostalgic uh, element within anyone who went to camp. They were trying to market it to 
to whoever was in the video store on that nostalgia, not just the fear factor. Where Friday the 13th, it did take place at a summer camp, but you have no idea really from the cover art. It looks more sinister. It's the dark silhouette, the kids sort of in the weeds. With the knife. Yeah. So you know something is dark is happening, but Sleepaway Camp, it does have the rather silly cover art of a knife stabbing through a shoe with blood somehow coming out of it as though the shoe is sentient and alive. And I don't know where that comes into play. Maybe that's like, like the silver shamrock part three that we never got. Maybe they were heading down that territory, but the idea that you would flip it over then, and there's no pictures from the film on the back of the VHS box. It's just this letter. It, so the front is painting, it's artwork. The back is artwork. You're not seeing anything about the movie. And I think that's kind of appropriate yeah. because this movie stands so uniquely on its own in the pantheon of genre that mm. it, it's just such a, a singular entity that touches for me on Meatballs and Meatballs 2 as much as it does on Friday the 13th, parts one and two, you know? Absolutely. Which leads to me one of my first observations about this movie, which is so interesting, is that, you know, we've watched a lot of movies that have high schoolers or college age, you know, ki- you know, ostensibly high school or college age kids in various movies. And they all, you know, they look 35. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a come on, you know, it, it, it's not. And that's a 1981 35. Yeah, it's not a 2022 35. Are kids like they are teenagers and they feel authentically so? Yeah, I mean, Robert went went to the camp where they shot it. He had gone there when he was a kid, and so it was mapped out for him mentally. And you think about that eliminates the disconnect with the what you're creating when you bring people into the film that are appropriate for it. And I think that's what my brother and I found because we rented this. We were beating a path in the the streets on our bikes to far more to rent this damn thing. Cause we rented it so much when we were kids, we can still quote it almost front to back. It was this and I'm going to get you sucker are the two movies that we knew front to back. <laughs> Fantastic. And, uh, both completely inappropriate for our age when we were getting into them, but thank God we did. And, <laughs> and, uh, but it was, here it is that magic thing in horror that is so often a bit of a disconnect is that we were seeing ourselves on screen. Sure. You were seeing kids. I was that age when I encountered it. I don't know what it would be like as a first time viewer to walk in as like an adult. Maybe there's something different in that experience, but it really resonated strongly because everyone on screen was literally the same age I was when I saw it. Was that the same experience for you guys? I I, I, I want to speak to the, the encountering it as adult for a first time because an interesting thing happened when I was rewatching the film this week uh, before the show is that my about I was about 45 minutes into it and my wife came downstairs. Now, my wife does not watch every movie. Sometimes she'll watch a movie, but she she in, in with me, but she kind of caught it for about 45 minutes in and was just absolutely fascinated by this movie and i was just like hell i'll go back i'll start it all over again i mean it's only a 90 minute oh. movie i could i could you know i'll make some notes during it and she absolutely there was something about the girls in particular judy that was just that struck her as so real i mean we grew up in the new york area this movie was shot in the new york area oh. and there's some very new york type people uh, in it, like, and it was just like she instantly kind of like I-, I knew people like this, like that was that that's 
you know, it, 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 and then of course I'm like, wait till you get to the end, your your jaw will drop open. Which in <laughs> fact, I mean, her jaw hit the floor. She's like, I, I can't, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, we'll get to the the end in a few minutes. Yeah, and um, but I, I'll say from when I saw this, I, I probably wasn't 12. I was a little. I was probably late middle school, I would say. So like more mm. like 13, 14. Uh, and this will go into, uh, it's not going to spoil anything, but it will certainly point you in the right direction. There is something extra special about watching this film when you yourself are going through puberty and all of the changes that no, encompass sure. that. And it really, um, and frankly, as with any coming of age film, which is the wonderful thing about this, it's uh it really does it's already tugging so many different emotions and uh little push button points in the psyche that are there without um the the horror elements and then when you get the horror element and the the psychological uh you know horror element of of what has been happening yeah. this whole time and and for years uh you know prior to most of the action of the film it just when you mix all of that in that cocktail, I think it just makes it um, very memorable. Uh, memorable is is yeah. exactly the word. The movie starts off as many of these movies do with a scene uh, in the past. We we eight years in before the the main action is the opening scene where uh, you know we have uh, John is is a father. He's got two children, um, Angela and and um, Peter, and they are having you know they're having a, a relaxing time on a lake um, and. Uh, a speed, but accident involving a speedboat pulling a water skier that loses control and just careens into them. And I just want to point out, folks, you shouldn't horse around near the water. It's not safe. Yes. Uh, and don't let people drive speedboats who are not qualified. Um, even if they call you chicken or something. Um, even just if they call you chicken, your it doesn't matter. That's all it takes. In these movies. Safety first, especially <laughs> around water. Uh, you know, we can't emphasize that enough here at Get Me Another. Um, and we see that John is killed by the speedboat. We see that one of the children is killed, although it's not entirely clear. And and we see a, a life preserver floating across the, the top that's been chewed up by the boat. And it's a, it's a scene. It's it's in comical in some ways because of the, the girl on the water ski. There's a and you know it's just but at the same time it's also like oh this is this this tragic accident and then from there we jump ahead like eight years where the survivor of the accident the the daughter angela is living with her aunt martha and aunt martha's son ricky and let's just say right from the beginning aunt martha's crazy like she comes across as bonkers from minute one the way she talks in like this sing-songy manner it's so strange to say the least I mean, it's uh, she, Karen Fields in that role is outstanding. And it it's one of those things that is often employed in film, especially in horror, when they want to put you off kilter from the very beginning. The speedboat thing is so bizarre because for a lot of reasons, even logistically them being so yes. close to the shore, but a speedboat hauling ass that just directly over that <laughs> and then somehow making the turn safely away. It's all presented so weird. And there's an extended discussion between the two in the boat. The guy who's like, yeah, oh, come on. My dad won't let you drive the boat. You know, she's like, oh, come on. No one's going to see us. It is this back and forth. It's like this could have been like much shorter, but they build it up. and then. The accident occurs 
And then the transition into Aunt Martha and the way she goes about it, it's so cartoony that you have no idea what to make of it. But in a way, what I thought of when I, I remember seeing it when I was a kid and I thought, I just thought it was like some friends of my parents because as a kid, adults are aliens. That's true. And yeah, the way yeah. the way that some of them choose to communicate and conduct themselves, not that far removed from my child perception of what many adults were. But now as an adult, you watch it and you're like, what is happening? She's so off the rails. But it destabilizes the audience, right? It, yeah. it puts us in the realm of this is a definitely not something that we've experienced before. And anything is in play, clearly. Well, she does get the kids off to camp, and we we arrive. We we meet other campers. We have this scene where we we meet the can the counselors and the campers, including the 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 head chef Artie, who is an, a clear pedophile, openly lusting after the newly arrived campers, and it's it is so weird. And he says stuff that the other s- staff just kind of laughs off, and I'm like. This isn't the thing you laugh off. This guy is just, I mean, I don't know. I, I also want to point out before we, we get into Artie that one of the other cooks, Ben, is played by Robert Earl Jones, James Earl Jones's father, which is just kind of mind-blowing to me. And he has the voice, too. He does. He does. He absolutely does. Yeah. They're too young to understand what's on your mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Artie, oh, Artie. How did Artie make it into a movie? How did this character exist in this universe? And so in everyone, everyone's nonplussed around him when he's like, yeah. I like to call him. He's like, I like to call him spring chickens. Where I come from, we call him spring chickens. Like, what? It's, it's insane. And I mean, it's insane both in universe that he got past the screening process. And then it's also insane in a movie that this is actually in a movie that was released in movie theaters. It's like, it, it's, so much of this movie is, I can't believe this is in a movie. Like, I can't believe they went ahead and did it. And it, what what's, what makes it so amazing is that it exists. Like, that's the thing about Sleepaway Camp. It actually exists. I think part of the, par- part of what's amazing in it is that what, like a character like Artie, this movie takes things that would normally be maybe camp mythology. Oh, did you hear? I heard Artie likes to whatever. Or did you hear that when you sleep in the woods, you get hacked up with an ax? It takes the things that would that are mythological camp elements and makes them real and puts yeah. them flesh and blood on screen. And many of the most implausible deaths in horror history and all of it adds up to it. Again, this is like back to the Aunt Martha thing. It really is through a child's lens, this thing. And it's it's almost like a retelling of the of the mythology around a summer at camp that went horribly awry. It's very Absolutely. unique in that way. Absolutely. And with Artie and a lot of a lot of the other victims, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, quote unquote, deserve it. Yes. Um, which I think Robert talked about, I think, crafting it that way. But it does. It's interesting because we, we've been looking at the, the arc of all these things, you know, starting from Halloween, where the beginning of the slasher trend, you do not have uh, hateable victims right. for the most part yet, right? And that you're slowly now, as the gore and some of those things are becoming a selling factor more and more, uh, even though the MPA keeps trying to yank them out. But um, then it, in order to craft that audience enjoyment of the kill even more, it's the, oh, and you're going to enjoy seeing this person be killed, it, you know, in a in a way it's, it's definitely a shift 
um, which I think is what a lot of people think of as yes. 80s slashers, is that that second half of the trend where that that happened much more than. Uh, yeah, than absolutely. Game. It's 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 the, the characters, the potential victims are so despicable that we don't mind seeing them get killed by and large. There's some exceptions, but by and large, it's like, yeah. well, I don't mind seeing uh pedo Artie get, you know, his face boiled off with boiling water because you know what? That guy's asking for it by being such a, by being such a, a, a bad dude, you know, it's um. what's your theory on the chain, that transition happening in, the rooting for the killer ultimately what do you think that did to the storytelling and to the genre especially in the in the realm of slashers for example which is where this is most commonly in play what do you do you think it helped hindered or what are you, your guys's thoughts on how that transition influenced things it's different for me and it chiefly signals um a change from the villain as antagonist to almost the villain as protagonist yes. as far as how the movie's presenting things. And frankly, I think Friday the 13th and Jason had a, a lot yeah, to in do particular with that. the Friday the 13th sequels, which we talked about when we talked about Friday the 13th, the, yes. the, the original movie is kind of its own animal and, and very different uh, from the, where the sequels would go making Jason the main character and, and the star quote unquote. And and then obviously when you get uh, a movie that we won't talk about in the series, but we will in another series down the road with Nightmare on Elm Street, where you now have a a villain who is wisecracking and fun, you know, and and well, you got to make some people who are dislikable because we want to watch the fun kills. It doesn't. We don't want it to be traumatic. We want it to be entertaining. I think um, you're, that that connection to Freddy makes sense here in the realm of Artie because Freddy people forget about. They're wearing T-shirts and tattoos of him and all the rest of it, but they forget that he's a child rapist, child murderer. Yeah. That's the core of that character. And yeah, he's cracking wise and riding skateboards, but he's still a guy who's rooted in the most deplorable. This is like making Artie uh, the, the hero of a series of movies yeah. where he's got his fingers in this, but also being funny over here. So it's like, we're going to, we're going to accept that, which I think is really interesting to consider that that transition. And I think also eventually we get to a point with filmmakers like uh, Rob Zombie, for example, where there's guys who grew up loving the monsters and we've always been more fascinated by the villains. They have the richer backstories, the cooler equipment, the better outfits. That's always the case. Villain fashion is peak in the Always. world of entertainment. I, I was talking about the old G.I. <laughs> Joe uh, series. I'm like, Cobra was dressed to the nines, you yeah. know? Oh, Their yeah. uniforms were great. <laughs> the Empire is way more better dressed than the Rebellion. Like, let's be honest here, you know? It's interesting to think about that transition, though, from antagonist to protagonist, because while we're not necessarily rooting for people, for rooting for the guy it becomes less about characterization at a certain point, especially in the Friday series and more about the kills. And then Fangoria starts putting the kill list for the new movies and like how people died. And now it's like Mm -hmm. hockey stats with these guys and and, and what they've done. And the body count starts to matter. And this movie kind of sits a little bit in the middle of that because it certainly isn't a body count movie per se, because it doesn't revel in the violence against people either. A lot of it is discovered in terms mm-hmm. of what's happened. So it isn't something that's trying to shock the audience into some sort of gory, oh my God, screams. 
it's more, it's working on a more subconscious level with us in the, like what already sets up beyond what we've already been destabilized by is this environment where kids really aren't safe from the beginning. And that's something you always feel. You suspect that anyway, when you're a child and you go somewhere like camp, but to see this there, they're clearly telling the audience, like there is no foundation for these children in this place. Everyone who's bound. And then there's the, on the opposite side of this hill, as these kids are running down, these innocent little children unknowingly just toddling off to camp and excited about their thing. And he's thinking about God knows what with them. I mean, it's a, it's a very dark moment yeah. that's oh, played off so lightly. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's also very different. You know, it's, it's interesting that this is a movie where children are at risk, which is different than even Friday the 13th, which although it is set at a camp, no, no campers have arrived in the, you know, at that point, it's just the, the counselors getting ready and they're, you know, they're teenagers or young adults and it's a different, it's just a different bag. Uh, I would say that Artie also gets what he deserves because that kitchen is disgusting. And for keeping a kitchen that horrible, he deserves to get, I mean, the fly paper, the fly, the paper. fly paper. Oh my God. And I, my wife was like, She's like, that. some of that corn is not fit for human consumption. I could just tell you. I'm like. How about the hilariously tall pot that he has? Which yes! makes you think. He, that was he, in he my notes. This big Dahmer pot in there. And you're like, well, what else is he cooking in this? Is he, is he also a cannibal? It begs so many things, but not corn. Not like boiling it's so, corn. It's so comically tall. No. Like, yeah. it's like, did they find that somewhere? Did they make it? I don't know. I don't. It's like, how would you get. How would you empty that pot? Even if it, if nothing bad happened, like how would you even manipulate it? How would you wash it? It's impossible. There's, it's just it's, and it's uh, it's in keeping with uh, the '80s slasher boom tradition of a Chekhov's oh, yeah. knot gun. In this case, it is Chekhov's weird ass <laughs> stockpot, <laughs> and it's going to come into play, baby. But um, maybe it's that and- child's eye thing again. This gigantic thing that when you're a kid, yeah. you walk in, everything yeah. looks huge. You're seeing it from a different perspective. So it's almost like forced perspective in the kitchen. And the flypaper, to some extent, is that too. Oh. It's unbelievably disgusting and long and hanging everywhere, oh, like you yeah. were saying. And it's just these little elements that Again, it's so gross. Like now the food isn't even safe. You know that the food isn't safe. The pantry isn't safe, et cetera. And it, it's it's extra upsetting, I think, because, and we've talked about this in, in relation to other movies, that with a lot of these, there is, do you go to the evil? Does evil yeah. come to you? Um, so in Halloween, it's just kind of, you're in the area and in the first one, Michael comes is coming back home, but it's not like, a cursed place or anything like that versus Friday the 13th, where camp crystal Lake is, is going to be marked forever. Right. Because of the past incident of violence, this one it's, it's, it's almost like neither. Yeah. Right. It, it, you know, camp Arawak or whatever is not a marked for death place. Right. No, but it is completely (laughs) unsafe as you point out, but in a real world kind of just like, you're out yeah. of the nest, baby, and it's going to be dangerous. I mean, that's one of the reasons we debated whether, because we're eventually going to do a Get Me Another Friday the 13th series where we talk about those movies that were much more inspired by Friday the 13th and and its sequels. Mm-hmm. Um, and we debated, because obviously you have a camp setting, and that all, oftentimes is a tell for this is a Friday the 13th-esque movie, but it's different here because unlike 
most camp movies or most movies where they go to a place in the wilderness and the evil is waiting for them there. And it's a matter of unlocking that evil or opening the door to that evil here. It, it, they bring that with them. It is, it is one of the, 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 the characters that arrives at the beginning that is, is ultimately the killer. And it has nothing. It only tangentially is related to the place because it is, it's the place that happened, but it's not like, oh yeah, here's this crazy guy out in the woods waiting to, to chop everybody up if you stumble across his cabin, um, which is why it's ultimately in the, in the Halloween series rather than a future Friday the 13th series. Well, that's what makes Halloween work. That's the simple, the very simple premise is that you're not safe in the most sacred space, which is your home. Yes. And it's and it's something that lurks. And that's why when I, when I was doing working at Trankus Films years ago, the, we, we put Halloween back in theaters in 2012. And one of the things that we had to do is I cut a new trailer for it. And the moment that I think speaks best and clearest to that film, what makes it work is toward the end when Lori and Michael have already had some altercation in the house and she's leaning up against the wall next to a closet. Oh, and yeah. behind her is just a sea of darkness in a closet, which we all see every single day, every night when we go to bed. And then out of that emerges the shape's face and that beautiful yeah. shot that is true. People have attempted to replicate it forever and no one ever has, including in the newer movies where they try it yeah. again and again. But that movie to me is it's the essence because it's this penetration of a sacred space. Yeah. And this thing at, at the camp, it presents something. And I don't know if this is the New York frame of reference being a city, especially at that time, that was, you know, 42nd Street was alive and well sure. during this era. And there was a lot of it was before the cleanup of the city and so really it wasn't necessarily safe it's not inherently a, it's it's not inherently safe to go anywhere right. in manhattan or anything at yeah. that time so for camp to already be an unsafe space before people start dying and for the deaths not to have anything to do with what we initially know as the threat which is a pedophile right, right. That, it's two completely separate things but if you're to compare it to one of these things like jaws where you go in the water this would be akin to one shark encountering a bigger shark and yeah. that being kind of the story here. But it's but it's so completely outside the realm of a normal slasher in who the killer actually is, which we'll eventually get to here. I mean, it's yes. very unique in that regard as well. Before we get to that, we have an extended softball sequence because that is amazing. Is we get we get like five <laughs> minutes of the softball game and it, it has one of my favorite exchanges is when the guy tells Ricky, you know, eat shit and die, and he responds with, eat shit and eat shit live. live, Bill. Yeah. It's, my wife thought that was the best thing. She was like, that is the best response to that. That is amazing. And it, it just is. And it's, that they let this softball game go on for so long is is kind of, it's brilliant. It, it's defying most filmmaking logic, which is hit the points and then go on to the next thing. But it's in some ways it's great because it just allows for this, this sense of place and this sense of what, you know, what camp is like. It's these sort of, you know, the kids playing the video, the handheld video game and the, the ball comes and it's like, Oh, he's, he's not going to get it. And then he catches it and he, you know, it's like, and he throws it in and then you see him kind of just fall down in the background. It's so mm. great. <laughs> it's the, the burning does something similar. It, it, and also similarly with a softball scene, 
yeah. that, that lets you establish that. But this goes back to that same thing. I, mean, I keep on hammering on it over and over again. The summer camp experience is largely boring. Yeah. It just is. When you go to camp, it's a lot of sitting around in hot days and waiting for the next activity, then whatever it might be. And that takes the audience and puts you there. And yeah, you're forced to endure it just like the kids are forced to endure it. And nothing really even happens outside of establishing a little bit more about Mozart, the boy that you're talking about in the outfield there, who is the kid who shouldn't even be at camp anyway. Certainly a no. fish out of water there. Oh my God. Because they, they do a couple of, of, of very kind of not like they don't they, they pull some pranks on him that are very benign. I mean, it's yeah, like the well. it's the shaving cream in the face, that thing. But like he, they it's like, oh, he's asleep. They put shaving cream on his palm. They they have a he put he ends up on its face, you know, it's that kind of thing. But then he pulls a knife on the other kids immediately. It's like, dude, you went from zero to sixty really fast. <laughs> like it's that is a little less so, but then with the the whole softball sequence is it is doing something with the the quote unquote a story because this is one of many instances of setting Ricky up as a possible red herring yes. uh, as for the as to the killer because Ricky's hot temper and him constantly getting into fights with people uh, often over uh, mm-hmm. his cousin uh, and protecting her, but in, in this instance, uh, not that. But then even I think mo- things like that knife moment are. You know, also, it feels like functioning almost like a little bit of a red herring mm-hmm. as far as it, this movie doesn't truck in a lot of red herring suspects. No. It's it's not trying to do that. But I think it it does. It's laying the ground with Ricky for sure. And I think maybe that knife moment, it's it's a little little bit of stuff. Well, and they had to too. get the knife out. That's yeah. the knife that's used later. And so yeah. it needed to be established that that would be there because it wouldn't make sense for either of the kids to show up with a knife to camp. That, right. Especially that kind of like a Bowie knife thing. And that scene with Mozart sets up the line that is the most quoted between me and my brother over the years, which is when the camp counselor comes in and breaks it up. You guys, oh, you, I'm keeping this to the end of the season, like whatever. And then <laughs> you guys go outside and go play or something. I got to take a wicked dump. <laughs> his wicked dump does not go well and then he grabs a magazine and he goes in there but i gotta take a wicked dump is it in, in fact my brother makes these t-shirts for his drum corps unit this thing that he's a part of and he's been making other shirts too for defunct theaters in iowa and with their marquees and some pretty fun stuff and we ended up in a discussion about this very film just a few months ago and he's like, oh, I have an idea for an I got to take a Wicked Dump shirt. And he actually <laughs> made one. And it's on his Redbubble page. It's the, That's amazing. Which we'll get to, I, I presume, here in a moment, this death <laughs> in the movie. But uh, it's the beehive through the screen. And it says, I got to take a Wicked Dump, which is The oh, beehive through the incredible. screen is... is and it, it, I want to say that this movie is interesting because you don't get a lot of like... You mentioned earlier, you don't see a lot of violence. What you get is the the violence beginning and then you cut away and then you cut back to a really gruesome aftermath. Yeah. Like the guy who gets drowned and, and you know, like, and you see him dead on the, uh, in the boat and it's like, it, the, it's just, it's nasty. The bee thing, I, I actually had to look away because it was just like, I was like, oh my God, that's, that's too, but like the guy's sitting there, somebody like cuts open the, the screen like a beehive on a stick and drops it. And then just like, and it goes, and he's already, the, the killer has already locked the stall door so he can't get out. But I'm like, 
first of all, what's up with those bees, man? Like, it wasn't just like, oh, a stinger. Like, they destroy this person. Like, they literally destroy his face. And I'm like, it's... How many were there in that small nest too? It's like, it's, it's, it's bananas. It's well, and, and beyond that, you talk about locking the stall. I think you're being generous. Yes. What these stalls are, they're camp stalls. It's like a piece of plywood for a door. It has about two feet of clearance at the bottom. Yeah. And there's just like one of those generic kitchen cabinet handles. They slide a broom through it. So, but he never thinks to crawl out under the stall and they right. keep cutting to the wider shot. It shows that there's about two feet of clearance under there where you can see his feet and his shorts as he's struggling. And it it's hilarious because it's so implausible. It's so silly. And then finally he does fall out, hits yeah. the ground, and that's where like he goes through the door. Like at, yeah, uh, at long last. And then you see his face, and it looks almost like Art did we miss Artie's death? I don't know if we did, but th- his face is this bubbling goo with bees all over him and stuff. We, we kind of glossed over it. Artie gets you know, scalded by the water in the comically large pot. But then you have that close-up of him where like, it's like you could see the, 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 the burns and boils. bubbles like yeah. coming boils. It's like, it's, it's so like, it's unsettling, but it's, it, 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 it's, it's like without actually showing the violence, it's really an interesting technique of like a really disgusting aftermath rather than we're going to show the head get chopped off. And you get that such a nice, like, sickening sheen uh, in both of these deaths, the Artie death and Andy here, where you get, I mean, it just feels very gooey and uh, Artie looks like pizza in his. And it's it's so funny how he's sitting there just screaming. "Ah, ah," (laughs) And then they cut to couple minutes later and they have him in like a cast a body cast and he's still going (laughs) ah ah so it's presumed that he's just been sitting there and and one character that we've forgotten here and i know we're kind of jumping around but that plays into both of these scenarios is mel yes who runs the camp mel Uh, is something else mel is uh you know i you know he he's like he pays off the other cooks to say, don't say anything about this. We don't want to scare the counselors. Like, you also don't want to get your camp shut down and have parents pulling the kids out and lose money that way. Mel is sort of fascinating because it's like, I don't know, what kind of camp are you running, pal? And and you're not the only one who thinks Mel is fascinating <laughs> because against all odds, against oh all God. odds, M-E-G is into this dude. M-E-G, Meg, is is one of the head female counselors who is, I want to back up, because we another character we've not talked about yet in any, in any significance is Angela. And Angela, played by Felissa Rose, and, and, and she's brilliant. I think she is great in this movie. And, yeah. But, but she has this effect where she, she's like the calm center of this world, but everybody goes insane around her. It's like she just radiates insanity. She does nothing, but everybody starts to lose their minds when they come within like a, a certain circumference of, of Angela. Like Meg, Judy, Meg's little toady is amazing. Like the, oh my God, the, the crazy eyes acting going on with Judy is incredible. Like... Uh, she's got that line. This is the quotable line in our house in the last few days. A real carpenter's dream. She's flat as a board and needs a screw. And just the the way her eyes bulge out of her head. Like, but she's why is she incensed by Angela? I cannot figure it out. It's just she's made 
insane by Angela's mere presence. Yeah, she's it's wild. We, I mean, setting up the duo of Angela and Ricky. So Ricky is the boy. Yeah. And then Angela's the little girl and that they're the ones that Aunt Martha sends off to camp. And so they show up together and Ricky is in Jonathan Tierston plays Ricky, who we mentioned during the softball scene. Ricky's kind of like Angela's caretaker in a way, keeping an yeah. eye on her. But he also has this thing because he's been to camp before and he had a little something with Judy the last summer. And so he presumes he's going to show up and bump into Judy again Start and pick up, up where they left off. But that's yeah. another sort of red herring thing, maybe a little bit that he's brushed off. Judy has mm-hmm. blossomed in the year since. And now all the boys are after her and she just kind of, yeah, you're old news until she wants to manipulate him here and there throughout the movie in effort to fuck with Angela, which is because Angela makes Judy crazy yeah. for reasons I, my wife also assured me that at that time, side ponytails were very much a thing. I was like, is, is <laughs> that side ponytail was, she's like, yes, that was a thing. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we also have the other friend, uh, uh, Ricky's friend, Paul, who becomes yeah. interested in Angela. And, and uh, honestly, for a while, there's a very sort of sweet, you know, kind of that, that tentative relationship that kids, that young people have when they are not entirely certain of themselves like that that kind of like oh it's like oh wait i don't want to embarrass myself so i'm i'm you know and i give paul credit he goes in and he he goes that kiss with that great music cue and then he asks for the second one and the music cue is repeated it's so good um yeah it's it's this movie does really capture stuff about being young yeah and paul paul as nice as he is um does get a little pushy with uh, wanting to go further with Angela, uh, which, you know, uh, look, it's uh, for that time period, I'm sure not inaccurate because there is a there is something with this movie with the kids in that they are they all wind up being complex, yeah. whether or not, you know, whether or not we as the audience might want it to be. So Paul, in this instance, he's not the 100 percent good guy, right? He's he does some things that aren't, That's that aren't great. Or makes mistakes. He makes mistakes yeah. is how I would term it. Um, and then you even see moments with, um, you know, total villains like M.E.G. M-E-G. Where you see a different side of her with Mel, um, which is a whole other thing. But where she is not the same person as she is um, lording it over Angela and wanting to do that, right? She is, she has that, everyone kind of has like, these different faces yeah. that they're showing to different people based on the circumstances. Um, and you know, I, some of these things you don't know, am I reading into it? Cause I know where all this is going or, you know um, but it, 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 it's interesting because most, most of the characters who get a lot of screen time, I think have more than one persona yeah. in this movie, including Rick, oh, yeah. who is, can be nice and laid back with his friends, but you, you push him with uh, in a different context he becomes a different guy, very angry and uh, well. You feel, that. Yeah, and that's very human. I think that we're we aren't yeah. one note, and that's one of the things in especially sl- slasher genres that people are set up to die, and when they are, they're kind of just paper mache people. They're one thing. There's the nerd. There's the jock, and those stereotypes are very prevalent in all this stuff. But here, people are allowed to be human. What's different is that the other side of everyone that you're talking about is rage. Yeah. There isn't yeah. there there isn't the, the flip side that's like 
the artist that comes out and they want to help. I don't know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. It's like everyone's either nice and engaged or they're fucking losing their minds yeah. in fury. And Ricky is the greatest example of that, how he and, and Meg are probably the closest in terms of just blind fury when they get angry and on a switch on a dime, they turn to like the whole water balloon scene where the kids are on the roof of the oh, yeah. cabin and they throw a water balloon at Ricky and he, he's just walking along and he turns and then it becomes instant death threats. You motherfuckers, you cocksuckers. I mean, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah it's, I'm going to kill you mother. It's like nuts. And then Mel comes up and be like, come on, come on, let's come down there. Well, Mel, I mean, who, who becomes convinced that, okay, that these are the first, the, the, the kills, the way they're done, the first few feel like they could be written off as accidents. But as mm. time goes on, Mel becomes convinced that there is a killer at the camp and that it is Ricky. And how does he respond? He responds by attempting to murder Ricky. It is as one. It is would. an amazing. Yeah. <laughs> As one, he doesn't call the cops. He doesn't even call the cop with the fake mustache. He just flat out, I'm going to take matters in my own hands and murder this kid. He doesn't succeed, but he does give it a try. And it's so. And I will say with with uh, Mel, though, uh, the reason at least that he has gone so off the deep end there is because uh, I believe at that point. When he goes to find Ricky, he knows that Meg has been murdered. Yes, and Meg expressed a, a an absolutely un, unexplainable interest in in Mel. Like Mel is Mel has got to be fifty years old or so. Meg, presumably in her late teens, early twenties. Um, and I'm like, why is she interested in this guy? <laughs> like, I, it's I, it, it's he's not hot. He's not rich. I don't get it. Uh, it's this. It, I mean, and, and the answer is that it's clearly so that he will have been sort of everything gets elevated. You know, her interest in him elevates his anger when you know he discovers that she's dead. Yeah, I, I, when I asked Robert about that relationship, he didn't really have a an explanation for it. He 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 had no way to explain why, because that's a central point that a lot of people point to, especially if they're new to the film. If someone's seeing it for the first time, they're often like, what is this relationship between them? Because it's mutual. It isn't yeah. just Mel, like her interest in Mel. Mel is also very interested in her. And th- there's a date night where they set up a date. Yeah. The, the, the night where she, you know, and she goes to the, to get ready and, and I got a hot date. Well, no one there has dates. You're at camp. There is no such thing as a date. So it kind of clearly points to this. But the whole thing with Mel is, like he's operating in some crime world and this camp is almost like a cover because he, he just wants to get rid of the bodies. He's, he's not bothered by the fact that oh, yeah. people are dropping like flies around him. He has, he lords over his staff there. He's totally cool with Artie doing what Artie does. And by the way, so is the rest of the staff. And, and then he's going after these kids that are there, Mel trying to date. I mean, whether you want to say however, however old uh, Meg is, um, I mean, it's not appropriate. Don't get me wrong. And 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 she is also his employee, so it's even more not appropriate. Yeah. It's not appropriate on on multiple levels here. Yeah. It, it, again, the bodies begin to pile up. We have Meg gets uh, gets killed in the shower. Um, uh, Judy gets murdered. Um, you know, in one of the most more 
again, another case of you don't see anything, but the implication is gruesome because it involves a curling iron. And the sound is what sells that. Yeah. 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 So, so what you're seeing is on that one, I don't know if you, if we can touch on this now or what you're saying, oh, yeah, yeah. but, but yeah. the, she, she's in, Judy's in her bunk. Yeah. And she's laying there. She's just had a little bit of an interaction with a boy who gets spooked and doesn't want to make out. And he takes off and she's like, you pussy, whatever. And he leaves. And she's sitting there reading a magazine. And then it cuts to someone comes in. And this is really the first time. And I remember this moment on the the Blu-ray that when we did that, because the new transfer is so clear. <laughs> you can see what's happened here. Yeah. But on the old VHS tapes and the early DVD runs, there's someone who opens the door and it's a silhouette. Yeah. And it it sort of is meant to look like Ricky in a way. But maybe it's not. Really it's like leading. it's it's very kind of Yeah. Right. But on the on the new Blu-ray, you can clearly see that it's Jonathan Tiersten in a wig. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it then turns into silhouette as well, Judy has this interaction with him. And then the it's a silhouette of her hand, like this curling iron is picked up, and you see the curling iron enter the shot and move toward her crotch, and you don't know what's happening here. And and also the pillow is also going over her face her at the face. same time. Yeah, and then and then you hear the sizzling sound of the of the curling iron in her vagina, and then the arms fly up as she's kind of screaming into the pillow, and then the body is just unceremoniously just dumped under the bed, like they slide the bed out kick her off and you just next see that her feet hit the floor and that's it. But you don't see anything. It's all in what you're hearing. It's really an amazing way to present something that's so bizarre and gruesome, but attacking genitals. This is a movie that has a real fascination with modifying and injuring genitals, which we'll touch again on later. Yeah. Uh, And it's around this time that you also get what I think is the most inexplicable death in the movie, the one that is a real departure from all the others, which is that uh, you have uh, this group of little kids, younger counselors who are uh, like they're sleeping out under the stars with one of the, the, the counselor, younger campers sleeping out under the stars with counselors. And two of the kids complain that it's too cold. And, uh, you know, he leaves to take them back to the main camp and, of course, makes the incredibly stupid decision that even if there wasn't a killer around, I'm going to leave the three kids that want to stay just asleep in the, in the woods. Like, you know, hey, like a bear might come, come along or something. And I'm just like, and then we cut back to them he comes back and all the kids are, it seems, have been murdered. There are several questions I have about the sequence. Because first of all, he mentions how he has to drive the kids back to camp. Why they needed to sleep out somewhere so far that they would need to drive there is a question. But also, you know, how did the killer then get all the way out there and back to then do the, the rest of the kills that we see over the course of the... It's 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 fascinating because it's such a departure from everybody. The other kills are all people who quote unquote deserved it. Now, whether they actually deserved it or in the mind of the killer, this seems to be a case where you have complete innocence being killed for no apparent reason. This is one that Robert said he regretted leaving in the film. Really? Because it's something that he feels works against the story. And also he thinks it's too mean spirited. And out of everything in this movie, out of Artie, out of everything else, this is the thing he points to and goes, there is that one scene I kind of wish we wouldn't have put in there. And back in the version that you're seeing now, if you watch the, the Shout Factory Blu-ray that we did, this 
scene is extended in that. In fact, a number of scenes are. When I was, I took this film to Shout Factory and Mm -hmm. to hoping that they would be interested in distribution. And of course they were, but then this journey began for me in trying to find the elements on it because it was almost impossible because Hiltzik didn't have anything. No, and so I started looking around in these different storage houses and there, the version that came out on the Anchor Bay DVD set some years ago is cut. And there's only most of the other versions that have been out there are actually trimmed huh. from what the original film looked like. So that really, it's only, there was one DVD that was strangely enough only in the bargain bin at Walmart for a while for a number of years, years ago with a really awful cover from some Z grade company who didn't properly license it or anything that has a little bit extended version than from what people know. But anyway, this is to say this journey eventually led me to start rearranging the name of, um, I think it's American Eagle or American something or other that made it. I started rearranging those words in these different facilities. Do you have anything in storage under this? And then they'd go, and eventually I found this little facility who comes back and says, oh, wow, we have a lot. And I'm like, what? What, what do you have? And they said, well, well, we'll go through it. We'll send you the list, the inventory. And about a day later, I get this email and it was, it was everything. It was all oh the original God. elements. It was all the, un, like oh, the full film. So what Shout did then is reassemble for the first time, the complete movie, all the scenes in their entirety. And that's why it looks so great too, is because we had everything from point of origin essentially to rebuild this thing. So the scene you're talking about with the kids when they're discovered is about twice as long as it is in the other versions that people have seen. The scene where the where the the lifeguard turns the canoe over yeah, and the kid is in there and the snake comes out of his mouth and all yeah. of that. That's about twice as long oh, as yeah. it was before. A lot of that was really trimmed down. And I think what they were using was an international cut of the movie on these previous releases. Oh, but a lot of that was because there was nowhere to turn to just go, okay, here's where I store the elements. Right. It took me weeks of digging and weird questions. And, and it was under a different company name that it was stored. And I don't know if he was trying to shuffle it around because he, like would get kicked out of one facility for not paying for the storage fees or whatever it might be. But we really lucked out with that. We really lucked out. And so um, that the whole thing is longer than what people have really ever known before. And this sequence is is one of those that's extended, making it even more sad because <laughs> it oh, really yeah. is a sad scene. That it's is an amazing, scene. that is amazing yeah. what you went through to find those elements and that they were there, like that they were out there somewhere. Yeah. It's so it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, I think we need to talk a little bit about the end of sleepaway camp. And to do that now, we're going to get fully into who the killer was. Um, and the killer is Angela herself. Although, honestly, I am not entirely sure, and I want to get your your opinions on this. I am not entirely sure she knows she's the killer. It seems like there might be a dissociative identity disorder at work here, but it's never explicitly stated. Like, when she tells Paul to meet her at the lake after the social, clearly she knows what she's going to do. But I'm not sure that most of the time Angela is aware. I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? That's interesting. I don't know. What do you think, Rob? I think that she is consciously aware, but that uh, to, to kind of touch back on what you were talking about, you know, just kick this whole thing off, Justin, with uh, that, 
that age of, of being right. Uh, and, uh, childhood and all of that. I mean, let's face it. There's childhood rage, yeah. right? And in, in, in certain ways, look, I, I want to be clear. I'm not advocating no. murder. No one's okay. advocating murder. But in many, no one is advocating murder. But there is, at that age, there can be a real childhood rage and that there is a fantasy of acting yeah. out on that. And I think that because of the unique circumstances uh, with Angela's uh, upbringing, that those fantasies beca- became reality. And uh, and the thing, too, is there were triggers yeah. here because this has not happened right. before. And, and I think that there's two sets of triggers, really, is the setting itself being reminiscent of uh, her, her dad getting yeah. uh, killed, right? And then also there is the, you know, the first time at a sleepaway camp at that age and the sexual awakenings that can happen in that atmosphere uh, interacting again with the unique upbringing to kind of just set stuff off. But I think, I think she is aware, but I think it, it's a, it, it's a power fantasy gone wrong. What, what some kids would imagine she actually does. Now, of course the twist is that Angela is not actually engine. This is that scene at the end where everybody sees this scene and you will never forget it, where Angela is in reality, Peter, and that John's son, not his daughter, survive the accident but crazy aunt martha and we get another crazy aunt martha a quick flashback she already had a son with ricky so she decided to raise peter as angela and the final shot of a fully naked blood-drenched wild-eyed angela complete with penis is i mean again is a shot that will burn itself behind your retinas and you will never forget again my wife was just stunned she was like i guessed a lot. there were a lot of things i could have seen coming that was not one of them and it's a really interesting ending especially in the modern context of of uh, you know of transphobia of gender roles all of that stuff uh, and this is 1983 so that stuff wasn't necessarily in the same the zeitgeist in the same way uh it's it's fascinating. I don't know what to say about it because it's just fascinating because it's like, oh my God. Um, there are some people who think it's transphobic. I'm not sure that it is, but it's certainly bizarre. But also this film has really been embraced by the LGBTQ community in a huge way. And that's one thing that I found over the years, not just from, I mean, first from knowing Felissa for many years and sure. she's been a regular on the convention circuit forever and interacting with people every weekend somewhere talking about this film and what it means to them. And she has had some very wonderful, candid conversations with people who were grateful for this film, helping them feel like represented in some way to some extent, but also uh, there's, 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 she would be able to speak to this more eloquently, but she has had a lot of people approach her from that, from the communities with uh, fond memories of how important this film was to them at a certain point in their development. And I, de- mm. and I dedicated the documentary to LGBTQ kids everywhere. I noticed that. Yes. It's something that I think is, it's an important note that's played here, but, and that's what makes that ending so shocking. It's not, it's the, 
the old Hollywood sexism that we don't normally see male nudity. Right. There's that. That, that is but, absolutely part of it. But also, I think outside of conversations like what we're having here, it's not immediately apparent why it matters. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is, is, is confounding in that final moment in the film because, okay, so it's the boy. Did the, the forced gender transition force Angela into this? How much of her aggression? Because she does have a fondness for Paul. Yeah. Where, she has to be so conflicted in a million ways. We didn't even mention that Peter, the father, is is gay and, and, and is in a relationship with another man, which, you know, again, now if you had it in a movie, it would be, well, you wouldn't think twice about it. But in 1983, that was a very unusual thing. Like it was a very, uh, you know, unusual aspect. And yeah, I mean, it's it's just there's a lot of interesting things with with gender and sexuality in this movie. Yeah, I don't know what to offer on that outside of the fact that the ending is shocking for for the reveal because then you're looking back at everything. It's making you yeah. reconsider, like how did how is this possible? And there are some people out there who have a theory that Ricky and Angela were working together on this. That's at, that's how those kids were able to be killed in one spot while Angela was at the social or whatever. There, right. That's a, a dominant theory out there too that people like to hypothesize about. Oh, that's interesting. I don't yeah, know. But, but for it to come down, and, and at the end, the, what's crazy too is the reaction of the counselor. I think it's Ronnie. Oh, yeah. Angelo is Ronnie at the end, and he's with that other gal. And they aren't shocked that she's sitting there with Paul's head. Yeah. Paul's head in her in her lap. They're detached from his body. They're shocked that it's she's a boy. She's a boy. And then it freeze frame on Angela's face, given the thing, and then it turns green, and then it holds on that face as the song Angela comes on, which is one of the all time great end credit songs. By the way, this oh yeah no, it's fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful. Absolutely. Uh, that's the thing that I think has been the most fun and surprising looking at this era of films just one after the other. It is a golden age of of original songs written for horror yeah. movies. Uh, just so, so many. I mean, I honestly, I thought uh, Sleepaway Camp was going to be sort of the most unhinged movie that we watched in this series. Was, you know, I was like, oh, well, even even before we got to it, I was like, oh, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night is really something. But, but Sleepaway Camp, when we get to that. But that was before... I saw the next film we're going to talk about, and that is Blood Rage. Looks like you're going to get a chance to meet the rest of the family. My psychotic brother just escaped. I just don't want to spoil things. We else need more turkey? No, I'm pretty good, thanks. I don't like to talk about my brother. He gives me nightmares. I mean, this Thanksgiving. You know, somebody ought to tell him to get inside. Nobody should be out with my brother around. He looked exactly like Terry, except he had this really wild, crazed look in his eyes. There's nobody after me. He's chasing me. He's trying to hurt me. You're going to hurt my kitty. Oh, oh, God. You're a real sweetheart. You know that? A real sweetheart. It's not cranberry sauce, Artie. It's not cranberry sauce. Written by Bruce Rubin and directed by John Grismer, Blood Rage has got kind of an unusual release history. The film was shot in 1983, but it didn't hit theaters until 1987, and even then it was only in a heavily edited version called Nightmare at Shadow Woods. 
It was then released on home video in its unedited form with the title Blood Rage, although it began production under the title Complex and was renamed Slasher, which is the title card on the restored Blu-ray that's put out by Arrow Video. Regardless of what title you use, this film tells the story of two twin brothers, Terry and Todd. And as you might guess, one of them is good and one of them is evil. Uh, it stars Mark Soper as both Terry and Todd, Louise Lasser as their mother Maddie, as well as Marianne Cantor and Julie Gordon. I, I think it's very appropriate that we'll be discussing Blood Rage this week, as it's the first film we've watched in the series to revolve around Thanksgiving, which is coming up in a couple of days. Um, we open at a drive in movie theater. The caption reads 1974, Jacksonville, Florida. Immediately, I say, hold the phone. That is not Jacksonville, Florida. That's the Route 35 drive-in in Hazlitt, New Jersey. There's a Costco there now. And I'm like, <laughs> immediately, I'm like, some of this was shot in New Jersey. And I texted to Rom. He's like, you might not want to claim this movie for New Jersey. Um, <laughs> apparently, that is the only shot from New Jersey. The rest was all shot in the Jacksonville area. But I knew it was the Route 35 drive-in in Hazlitt. It's after this that we get one of the strangest cameos I have ever seen in a movie, which is Ted Raimi as a black market condom salesman, which is amazing. I love that that job exists. Um, and then we focus on two adults uh, in, the, in the front seat of a station wagon and two children seemingly asleep in the back. And the two adults begin to make out. At first, I thought it was the parents, which led me to ask, like, why do the parents need to go to a drive-in to make out? But then I realized that it's the mother's and, and she's on a date and she presumably has no child care. Um, one really odd moment is when we look in the back and it looks to be an M16 lying across the kid's legs in the back seat. And then it was gone in the next shot. And I'm like, wait, that was just a continuity error? Like, why is there... Like, who on the set had an M16 that was there? Now, I, I, I think I have the answer, because later, well, it, it, it unsettled me for like half the movie, because I'm like, what kind of production was this? <laughs> it does show back up. The M16 is on the uh, the bookshelf yes, later on. when they go into in adult the, uh, Terry's bedroom. The, yeah. So I think it was like, oh, meant to be a toy they had in the back. But because it disappears from the next shot, I'm like, was it just an M16 someone had lying around? Like, what? what is going on? Uh, the boys sneak out, and what happens is Terry steals what looks to be a ball-peen hatchet from a truck and then goes to kill a guy who's making out with his girlfriend. Sidebar. The girl runs away completely naked. Who gets completely naked in a drive-in? That's, like, it's, like, even if you're making out, you're not getting completely naked in a drive-in. But then Terry puts the hatchet in Todd's hands and smears blood on his face, framing him for the crime. And Todd just stands there and says nothing. It is, it is an unhinged opening scene, if there ever was one. What, what I most appreciate is that this movie opens with the montage before you get that action in establishing the, the location. It opens with a montage of people in their cars at the drive-in and it essentially is like, oh, it's opening with a montage of people that would absolutely watch Blood Rage. <laughs> um, I'm just like, like if you threw Blood Rage itself up on the drive-in screen, I would buy it. Like everyone there would love yes. this movie. 
That's wonderful. I love movies set at the drive-in. And this one, very few of them revel in much of that. And I think that Drive-In Massacre organically does for all of its shortcomings. And then this one here, I think it's just such a wonderful setup. The it Because you're exactly right, Rob. And it's not just the people that are sitting in those cars. It's the people at home. We love the drive-in. Yes. Yeah. People who don't get a chance to go that often. This is ingrained in the cinema that we love, these fringe movies. And it's just such a wonderful way to be, to start the whole thing. And uh, they could have set that anywhere. That could have yeah. been anything. That could have been a picnic. That could have been anything. But thank goodness they did it at the drive-in. Absolutely. And it gave Raimi his little condom salesman moment. Oh, it's so so bizarre and, and wonderful. Yeah. Like it's 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 bizarre in the best way possible, which is kind yeah. of this movie. Because uh, there's so many elements that I was just kind of like, wait, what? Like it just like it's. From the from the drive-in massacre, we we jump ten years. Todd has been in a mental institution for a decade, and Terry is now a college student. Uh, and Maddie, their mother, is still trying to find love. Uh, that won't go well. Um, and Maddie arrives at the institution. We see a scene where her, she comes to visit her son, um, leading to. And Rob, I I I want you to weigh in on this. One of the most fascinating and strangest voiceover sequences in cinema yes. history. Yes. Now, it's it's an old chestnut. They tell you voiceover's lazy. You want to show, don't tell the audience. But look, hey, man, you know, we've all seen some great film noir sure. voiceover, uh, you know. And anyway, uh, Fight Club wouldn't work without voiceover, right? You have to have it's it's inherent to the narrative. You cannot that movie does not work without the voiceover. Absolutely. Blood Rage is the first and only film that I've seen. There may be others out there that ask the question, why don't we show (laughs) because you have voiceover in a scene about the scene also as you're watching the scene with dialogue. (laughs) And I am just the. The evil genius it took to do this. It is amazing. And I, and oh man, it's just fantastic. Yeah. That's, uh, she comes to bring him a little bit of pumpkin pie, which he throws against the wall. Uh, does not, does not want anything to do with, but his, his doctor does say, Oh, I don't think that, that Todd is actually responsible. And, and Maddie is having nothing, none of that. She cannot break with the existing narrative. Um, I think it's clear to me at this point in the movie that Maddie is crazy, that any insanity in this family is descended from Maddie. Like, I, I, I'm not sure if it's in the script or it's in the performance or a mixture of both, but there's a sense with Maddie that she could fly off the rails at any moment. Like, can we can we talk about Louise Lasser? Yes, definitely. I'm a huge Louise Lasser fan. And it's definitely performance because this this is kind of a signature style of yeah. role for Louise Lasser, very much known for uh, un, unhinged performances. Uh, I will I'm gonna tout, although you, there, I think there's nowhere you can see it unless you spend a hundred dollars for a, a Blu-ray box or Mary a box Hartman, set, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, yeah, amazing for. It used to be on Netflix or something because I watched it you know, like years and years ago when it like streaming first happened on netflix and they had only yeah. weird stuff uh it was uh, that was my golden age of netflix absolutely like first three to five years but she is 
I mean, her performance in this movie is, I, I really love it. She, there is something so, there's like this warm humanity to the kind of unsettled characters she gives that I think that you don't often get when people, you know, quote unquote, yeah. play crazy. And, and that they were willing to stick with her. There are so many scenes in this movie are just her like on the phone or her. Cle- it's it's like it, 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 it's it's almost Cassavetti-esque in that sense of we're just going to stay with this unhinged person for a, you know, it, it, you know, an uncomfortable length of time. And, and she's she's amazing. She genuinely is bizarre, but amazing. Well, she's kind of the heart of the whole thing, though, and that's why I think we spend so much time with her. They don't establish very many characters in this movie. No, you have you have Rod and Todd, Todd and Todd and Terry, Terry. Terry that's thinking Simpsons, and um, and you have her, and yeah. then there's the boyfriend. And there's a couple of people at the, the the condo complex. Yeah, and that's that's really it. So they have to have a movie longer than twenty minutes. They have to spend time with her, seeing her go about her business. But I, there's a really, there's an interesting, for for how few characters there are, Mark Soper and his interactions with her are very interesting. They're very yeah. unusual. And it rides that line of almost incestual relationship yes, between yeah. them. And they're kind of dancing around that the whole time. So you think, well, maybe, maybe he's precious to her. And this could be a thing where he was coddled enough and they have a little bit extra of a special relationship because she gets very, she takes this all so personally from the beginning, adamant that the other boy just doesn't need to be around. Like yeah. he's the outsider and he's for sure the one who was default at the drive-in that night, all those years ago. And so it's an interesting dynamic between these two. That's not unlike Mel and, and Meg to some extent where it's uh, it's kind of strange. And also, as a side note, Ed French did the effects in both Blood Rage and Sleepaway Camp. And I didn't know if you had an accidental Ed French double feature today or what. That's what we hear at Get Me Another Call. Serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but you, you're touching on, um, you know, Maddie's relationship with um, mm-hmm. with Terry in particular. And I mean, to go back to the beginning of this thing, the trigger for Terry to go on his murderous ra- uh, rage is his mom getting with busy someone with else. a yep. weird guy up yep. front. And then presumably in the interim, nothing has happened. There's been no more murder. Until, until... she gets together with Brad, who is the manager of the condo complex as well. Um, yeah, I also I also want to mention that Mark Soper is absolutely convincing, totally convincing as two separate people. The way he plays Terry and Todd, uh, he, you know, that's the sort of thing that could easily go very wrong and very sideways, but it doesn't. I think he is really convincing as two completely separate people. Like it's, 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 it's movies fascinating and it's got some weird issues, but the acting is not one of them. It's, they're really, really good. Um, she is going to have everybody over. Maddie is going to have everybody over for Thanksgiving dinner that night, including her new fiance, Brad. Um, and here's my question, guys. Who shows that much cleave at Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> the woman who's sleeping with her son and the new <laughs> man in the room. She's doing double duty 
and trying to just entice everyone at the table. I mean, I don't know. Oh, God. And Brad's the manager of this whole complex, if I'm not mistaken. So it's uh, this is just so crazy. And Chris, she does not yet have a ring on that finger, even though she's about to. Well, that's true. She's still got a, you know, yeah, you know, it's uh, she's got at least, you know, she's got to hold them. Uh, they get a call in the middle of this Thanksgiving dinner saying that Todd has escaped from the institution, leading to one of my favorite lines, it looks like you're going to meet the rest of the family, my psychotic brother just escapes. Boom. <laughs> That's a bomb to drop at the Thanksgiving table. It's great. Oh, it's Sorry. so good. Um, yeah, it's... it's the, Everything about this movie feels like it's just kind of off from reality. Like, honestly, it does not make me want to live in a condo complex in Florida. I'll tell you that right now. Like it, it does not, it, like even before the murder start, I'm like, this, this all feels very weird and heightened. Another thing is never Chris and Justin, never audience, everybody never keep your back to an open sliding no. glass door. It's going to only invite trouble. <laughs> it's a bad idea. Just like look both ways when you cross the street. Wait 15 minutes after eating to swim. Don't keep your back to the sliding glass door that's open. Honestly, your desk should be oriented so it can look out at the glass door. Because they get the word yes. that Todd has escaped. And they, they you know, like the doctor shows up with her not very, like the, 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 the her, 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 the lackey from the from the the mental institution who is not very sensitive he does not come across as a sensitive mental health professional like when when Terry opens the door he just shoves what we later learn is a tranquilizer gun in his chest and it's like oh oh sorry you know it's and and eventually you know he's, he's smoking pot on the job I'm like this is not you know this is not the way a, a, a mental health professional should behave. But uh, Terry then goes on a rampage, starting with mom's fiance, Brad. And I think it's interesting that he starts with Brad. Like, that's the first person he goes after is not, uh, you know, and, and yes, he's, he's sitting, he's sitting with his back to a sliding glass door. And my God, I mean, just he's sitting in his office. He's listening to a Bible radio station. He's drinking old style beer and he's checking his gun. And I'm like, that's Florida. That's Florida. That's as Florida as you can get short of eating someone's face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that old style beer gets in the hero shot for this kid because this is one of the most, this is one of the most fun effects in the oh, whole Oh, it's movie. so great. Right. And they give it to you right yeah. off the bat and it, it sets the tone for, you know, what, what you should be expecting out of, out of this movie. And it's, it's yeah. Uh, Terry amazing. comes in and he's got a machete and he just chops that hand off beer and all. And then, you know, and then proceeds to hack him and, and the beer, the hand falls to the floor, still holding the beer. And it's just, it's, it, it is amazing. Like the, the, the effects in this movie are, are fantastic and just, they're holding nothing back. They're, they're holding absolutely nothing. And back. that's Ed French as the, you know, right there in that shot. And this brings to the fore here, something that must be noted. And that is how Mark as Terry has this delight yeah with everything he goes about doing and experiencing in this film he's not some lumbering maniac he's not someone who's crazed and out of his mind and running around he seems completely in his element and absolutely comfortable the whole time he's smiling he's cracking jokes he'll sidle up next to someone like 
hey, what you doing out here in the woods? You know, <laughs> you really probably shouldn't be out here. But there's such a playfulness. And I think if there was anyone else in this role and if it was handled any differently, I don't think the movie would be what it is. I don't think it would be as much fun. One of my yeah. favorite move moments in this entire film, and I bring it up now just because we're speaking to how he sort of portrays these characters, is at the end when, what's her name, Karen? The girl, yeah. when she's with by the, sitting by the pool with the baby, right? And you just see Terry on the back. He walks up without saying anything to her. He's not trying to alert her to his presence or anything. And he just starts bouncing up and down on the diving board. Yeah. He's got the machete in his hand. He's just sort of jumping up and down. She looks, he goes, Hey, like that. <laughs> it's it's yeah. so wonderfully casual. And she, ah, she screams. It's he sells this movie. I and absolutely makes it what it is. And he delivers. And, and, and the fact that when he's walking around, you know, he's walking around and he's strutting. Like, yeah. like it's John Travolta at the beginning of Saturday Night Fever or yeah. or John Travolta at the end of Staying Alive. Take your pick. <laughs> and he delivers yeah. what, his, his signature line in the film. Is that where you were headed, Mar- Rob? Oh. Oh, no. Oh, it's no, such a good it's, line because yeah. he's got and, blood all <laughs> over him and it's Thanksgiving. It's not cranberry sauce. It's not cranberry sauce. And he keeps, but he's not really saying it to anyone else. No. It's, it's no. just his own little inside joke with himself the whole time. He look at it. Huh. It's not cranberry sauce. He must say it. <laughs> he's just half amusing a dozen himself. times. It's, it's amazing. amazing. It's love it. Yeah. No, it's, it, it is, it is great. And yeah. What, with Mark as Terry, once Terry starts killing, uh, as part of what you're talking about, I think that there is, uh, I think he goes back to a more childlike persona than he had Terry yeah. in earlier um, because he starts uh, having those little ones. Like you said, he's like, um, it just feels like he's almost like a kid coming up like, Hey, what's going on? Oh yeah. I love it. <laughs> but I it feels that. a little bit like he's unbridled um, in a way that he wasn't when he was a kid. Cause both those boys at the beginning oh, are pretty yeah. stiff. Yeah. You almost get the feeling like they're living in an unhappy home and maybe they don't have a lot of freedom to, just do whatever. And so they're both mute in that early sequence, hardly saying mm-hmm. anything. I don't, I don't even know if they have a line, but they're just so almost robotic going about what happens. And so it seems like maybe this bloodlust that he has really allows him to be the kid that he never was or something. And this unfortunate complex is his playground. Yeah. Uh, and, and he comes back at one point and, you know, he's, he, he changes his, his shirt cause it's covered in blood. I love the, the line where, where she, where, you know, Maddie tells him, please put on a sweater. It's cold outside. And then the blue one, like, Oh, okay. <laughs> like it's, it's just, you know, it's incredible. You have Terry's friends are basically, they're going to become the fodder for his machete. You have a subplot where one of the girls, Andrea is babysitting for another resident of the complex. Who's on a date on Thanksgiving, which doesn't make any sense to me, but she needs someone to look at her baby and the baby will come back into it. Um, And for some reason, Andrea and her boy toy decide at one point to put on makeup and pretend if they're dead. Like they, they suddenly turn into Shelly from Friday the 13th part three (laughs) for reasons. I don't know, but it's, it's awesome. I love the Julie subplot of, uh, of her on the date trying to bag the yeah she's, guy, she says to her baby uh, to be the rich daddy. you know like i'm gonna bag yeah. you a rich daddy and i'm like oh my goodness uh oh the daddy oh by the way i have to the, the prospective daddy i should say the the guy that that julie's on a date with um 
he is he is he gets his head chopped off by by Terry, who then hangs it outside the door. In one, so like she opens the door and there's a head hanging there. That actor is Ed French. That is the effects guy, and that's a that and that is his own head. That's that he amazing. Used in many films over the years. So if you look at it again, it's it's not so far off uh, from from what he actually looks like, but it's just hilarious. And they just it was a simple matter of oh my gosh, we don't have anyone to play this role. Hey Ed, all right. So here Ed shows up. That is fascinating. I know that another one of the roles, like the producer played uh the 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 psychiatrist the doctor who comes to the she also meets a a a, a fate because everybody in this condo complex is going to be dead by the end or nearly um it's it's just fascinating and then you have again these long scenes with with maddie like she's talking on she's leaving messages for brad and she's she's got a glass of wine that is a very very generous pour of wine uh and she's just leaving these extended answering i say voicemails but i don't know if that term was in in use yet they were answering machine messages um you know just give me a call brad and 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 we stay with her it's so it's so fascinating that we stay with her for these long it's extended scenes it's like i said it's cassavetes-esque how about when she's at the fridge just mowing through some pie or whatever (laughs) and she's sitting on the floor you got wine She's drinking from the bottle and she's just mowing through. Honestly, you're you're just watching it play out in real time. It's me (laughs) about three o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving (laughs) night. I'm not ashamed to say it. You know, that that wine's got to get drunk. That that pie's got to get eaten. You know, now's as good as time as any. (laughs) Um, Andrea and her, and her, her paramour Greg at one point go to the pool to make out. And on the diving board, on the diving board, fully naked. Like they're not just like, it's like they're fully naked on the diving board, the community like, pool. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if it was the same <laughs> pool as the end, but then I thought to myself, there's no way this is a two pool condo complex. No, no, just no way. But like, of course, you know, Terry comes across them. And as you, as you say, Terry's joyousness at, what he's finally like, it's like he's been let off the chain and now can just go and do what he's maybe been doing in his head the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause this is a kid who just picked up a, a, a ball peen hatchet and killed a dude at a, at a, you know, at a drive-in theater. Like it's, mm-hmm. this movie is, is, is bananas in all the best ways. I, I, uh, I said to my wife, we will be watching this every Thanksgiving with our family from now to the end of our days. And my wife said, that's not going to happen. <laughs> May I, I'm going to make a confession here. I'm going to make a confession uh, in front of you both. The first three times I saw Blood Rage, I thought I didn't like it. But it was toward the end of that third time that I realized I'm watching this movie for a third time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe... <laughs> There's something going on here. Um, it, it, so it, it took, I think, my 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 cortex, it took a little while to catch up with my amygdala <laughs> on this one, where I, because I looked at it, because look, I'm, I, you know, you can look at this movie and you can nitpick it to death if you want to, right? You sure. can totally do that. And and I fell into that trap the first, you know, time the first I saw it. first two times thing. you saw it. And I was like, 
<laughs> well, the, after the first time, I'm like, oh, I'm never watching this again. And then a number of months later, I was like, you know, I, I'm going to give it another chance, right? I I only bring all of this up because I think that this is a super, super fun movie if you're coming in with uh, the right attitude toward it. And it's just interesting how experiences change over yeah. time. You know, even just like my my personal singular experience. And I think we'll, we'll see. It, it, will, it will have already happened by the time this aired. I've never seen this movie with a crowd. Yeah. And a, a friend of mine texted me literally this morning. Uh, it just went up. It's playing downtown at the draft oh. house two nights. And I'm like, I think I, I think I may have to go and see this because that'll be a whole different experience of this. Thing. Yeah, no, I think, yeah. I think this, this does need to be seen. I mean, you know, to sort of bring things in a, in an odd, in a very, very odd and unexpected way, full circle. Like I, I watched this movie and I texted Rob, um, you know, this is the Norse man of slasher films in that it's so insane and yet I could watch it all. Like I had never seen this movie before. I will I will probably go see it at the draft house and I will watch it as often as possible. Although I'm sure my wife won't let me watch it on Thanksgiving itself uh, because she's not a crazy person. But like it, it's it's like that film. And, and I'm not worried about the flaws. It just fascinates the heck out of me. And I say to myself, it's a miracle this movie is made. It, that it is what it is because it's it's defying so much logic that it can only be a product of, of sort of this unique set of circumstances. These people doing this movie at this particular time, any of the, the factors get changed and you don't have the movie that it is because it's not like they're, they're using the regular standard. This is not, you know, Sid Field has nothing to do with this movie. Like it's not, it's not obeying the usual laws of cinema. And as such, it's amazing. I think that the big one of the biggest things, though, contributing to that conversation is that it's easy to watch. Yeah, it it it, it doesn't feel heavy. It's not uh, there, there aren't any overtly annoying characters that you hear and just are grating like, oh, boy. I mean, Louise Lasser can be a lot to take. But as long as you're embracing her from the start, then it's part of the the landscape here. Yeah. And I think it, there's so many movies that are like this that I find myself even outside of Thanksgiving in this case putting on just because it's great background fodder it's fun i mean and this also goes back to very early in this conversation pointing to those rental nights that i had with my brother and my friends when i was a kid i never i haven't seen this with a, an audience either i think that would be incredible but i did see it with one of my best friends and we we would have these movie nights where we would mo move through five movies in an evening or something and half talking, half riffing, just having fun, taking breaks for food and whatever else. And I have such fond memory of my introduction to this movie, which was probably when the Arrow release came out, I think, is probably mm. when I first saw it. Because I, I don't remember it being very present, at least where I was renting. And I rented everywhere as a kid. And I would, I definitely would have rented this just based on the cover art alone. But it, it, it real fondness for that moment. And then it's easy to return to because I'm not only plugging into those fond memories of that movie night, but also it's so easy to have on. And every time you look up, there's a, that joyous character is there just hacking and slashing. 
and cracking wise. And and it's amazing. It just provides you all of the comfort element, provides me all the comfort elements that I want and something that I'm going to put on regularly. So I don't, I'm not surprised the third viewing is the one that hooked you, Rob, that made you realize something. That's great. It's like, uh, you know, we hear it get me another big James Bond fans. And, you know, I, you know, I, I love the classics. I love some of the more new, but I find sometimes when I just want to throw on something to have on, I'll go to something like the man with the golden gun or diamonds are forever movies that are not objectively the best in the series, but somehow have a kind of comfort quality that they're just, they go down easy. You know, they're, 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 they're smooth. Um, someone who does not go down as easy is Terry, because we have to talk <laughs> about the final, the final confrontation that we end up in the in the the pool complex, where uh, you know, you know, Karen eventually discovers the truth about Terry and Todd, and Terry chases her around the complex, and and she winds up in the unit with the baby, and she takes the baby with her, um, you know, and and they all get to the pool. That moment in the sauna is it, that moment in the sauna. Mark is so. Oh unhinged. my gosh! It's... Uh, when he's like he's he's talking to the yeah. dead bodies in the sauna, and and like like he forgot that that he had killed them in there, and then when he opens to your point, Justin, he's so delighted. Oh, yeah. He's like, oh yeah, of course, you know. that's amazing. Hey. <laughs> can you guys think of can you think of any killer in slasher cinema that's anything like this? No. No, because there's no. no, there's no, they're they're not. It, Terry un, is not burden. He's not either a right. blank slate like Michael Myers, nor is he mm-hmm. burdened. Um, you know, again, I think you, you have to get into like the supernatural slasher with Freddy, where you get that that that, that playful aspect. But it, to do it in more of a Halloween style, even Freddy's playfulness though is completely vicious. Everything he's doing, he's sadistic, pl- he, he's sadistic yeah. playing with his victims, and that's something that that Terry doesn't do. Yeah. It's, it's intended to terrorize. It's not for his own amusement. We never get the moments of Freddie alone. Like you never just get like, it's always cause it's always in the dream. So it's always intended to terrify the victims, not for his own delight. Right. Yeah. And that's what makes this so great. I think that that's the, this is the magic in the sauce for sure. Is that element, which is not cranberry it's sauce? Not cranberry sauce. <laughs> it's not cranberry. It's not cranberry sauce. <laughs> uh, Terry and Todd battle it out in the in the the complex's pool, and Maddie comes in and shoots and kills Terry. And then she starts blabbering about how no one's ever going to separate us again, and I don't want to be with anybody else. And you're the bestest. And I I swear to God, I really thought they were going to kiss. I really thought it was yeah. going to happen. Oh yeah. Because she's holding him. But then, Maddie, she thinks she's killed Todd. And when that revelation comes out and he says, I'm Todd. Well, then, you know, all the house of cards come crumbling down for Maddie. And she puts the gun to her own temple. And and we end on a freeze frame of Todd. We don't know what becomes of it. But it's just... It is not, it is, there's no guardrails on this movie. It is not holding anything back. It is going all in all the time. And that's what makes it so amazing. You know, it's. That ending. I'm Todd. I'm Todd. They're both shouting, I'm I'm Todd. Todd. I'm Todd. It's so weird. What? And it's, it's a big reveal, but kind of not at the same time. 
And, and, and there's a real tragedy there because she, Maddie, outside yeah. of, there's a brief moment at the Thanksgiving dinner prior to the realization about the escape. Outside of that moment of smiling and joy, she is suffering the entire rest of this movie. She is in straight yeah. anguish, tears, weeping, the fridge, the wine, sitting in the bed just beside herself. I mean, just like everything that we experience with her is this sense of fear and paranoia and loss. And then for it to come crashing down at the end. And that's where she is. She is all of the darkness that Terry is not the whole running time of the movie. They, yeah. they balance each other out in a way. And I think we need one to really dive into the other. But at the end, when there's this collision of realities, that that sends us off as an audience with a really a, a, a strange, uh, like a stain you walk away with because you're realizing she's about to commit suicide. And at the end of this, like you've suffered with her for 90 minutes. And at the end of this, she still loses everything that she ever wanted. It's so sad and tragic for a slasher movie. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. It, it absolutely is. It absolutely. And yet you have Terry balancing that out, as you say, you know, so it, it gives it, it doesn't feel like a slog. It feels like it's, it's fascinating and it's a yeah. delight. And with that family stuff, it, it's like Tennessee Williams made an 80s slasher in Florida. It is, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah similar. It's, it, it's as sweaty as you ex- would expect that yeah. to be. And and again, as you you've said, y- unique. This is not really in other slashers. Just just like that love triangle in in the original My Bloody Valentine, I think made that fairly unique as as a story element. Yeah. Um, is uh, you know, people found out that it's very hard to do what the original Halloween did, which is to have yes. characters hang and be real and and then have the terror happen. It, it's hard to do that and have it be propulsive. Uh, but so people move on anyway, this is amazing here. And, um, and uh, again, we're getting close to the end of this cycle. Yes. And so you're seeing that this um, movies are either, I think by this time, just a carbon copy clone, or they're getting very far afield from where things started because you kind of have, it's that game of telephone, right? Right. Um, you know, you whisper the word in the ear and it goes down by the end. You're who knows what word you're getting said back to you, uh, which is we and look, we harp on this every time we get toward the end of one of these series. But that's the fun for me of watching movies in a row in kind of a trend like this is, I mean, I'll be honest, when we started this thing, I thought we would get a lot more complete carbon copies. And I, I'm talking about the whole podcast, not just the series. And it has amazed yeah. me how that is just not the case at all. Um, I think that is a I think that is a great place uh, to end this episode. This has been extraordinary, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it was terrific to have you with us. Before you go, can you tell us how we can find you on social media? How we can find Reverend Entertainment on social media? Um, you're, I presume they're out there. Yeah, thank you again for having me on. This has been so fun, and I would love to come back. I love how you guys discuss this stuff. It's really a blast. And so if you ever want to welcome me again, I would be more than happy to join you. Yeah. Group. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Uh, absolutely. If you look on social media, my name is Justin Beam. It's B-E-A-H-M. And just um, 
happy to dive in on discussion, reach out. Justinbeam.com is another place where you can keep up on things. And I have a mailing list thing on there where it's not spam heavy or anything. It's only when I put a new post up, which is going to be about new releases or special features being announced or whatever, you'll get an email notification. So that's something I recommend as a good way to stay on top of stuff. But yeah, I would love to hear from anyone. Connect and reach out. I love these kinds of discussions and definitely appreciate you guys welcoming me on today. Thanks for coming, oh, no, man. It was, it's it good was to see you. Pleasure. you man. <laughs> and we hope everybody out there has a, a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving, free of machete-wielding identical twins. <laughs> um, and please join us next week for the final episode in our Get Me Another Halloween series as we explore three slasher movies that really are playing with the conventions of the genre and have a, a, a self-awareness in their sensibility. And that will be April Fool's Day. Slaughter High, and National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rom Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another. Q Angela. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when I look into your eyes, it comes as no surprise. You slip it away. AJ, your love of my life. It's so cold at night. I'm begging you.